You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. We do have a lot of ministry. We're happy to have a lot of ministry. We want more and more ministry. And so that is our prayer today as we uh, gather together. I'm delighted for us to be together again. It seems in the last year and a half, we've really grown in our appreciation for opportunities to be together in person. And I'm delighted to have sung a new song today. I love that when our worship team is able to add new songs and uh, give us a, another glimpse into the grace of God as we sing to Him. It's really a wonderful part of our church life together, and we pray it continues onward and upward. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word <clears throat> to our text this morning, which is still in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When you get there, you'll see we're we're just reaching the end of chapter 1. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, you can find that on page 650, of course, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Actually, last week, I think I said 160 uh, this morning when I was preparing, so that was my mistake. But it's on 650 in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. I was uh, thinking this week about the last year or so, uh, last six months, and uh, and uh, considering some different questions uh, about those years. I think it's good for us to do that from time to time. We don't have to do it just in January or at the end of December as we prepare for the turn of a new year. We can do that all throughout the year. We should be reflecting on what God has done and how our lives have been going, ways that we can grow and change. And one question that was brought to my attention was this. What was the greatest teacher you had in the last year? And I thought that was a really profound question. I don't know that I have ever really thought of that. And you know, I thought and thought and thought about what the best teacher I've had in the last year is, and I couldn't come up with any answers except one. And that answer is COVID-19. Now, I don't say that to be cute. I don't say that to be funny. Uh, I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm being completely honest with you. I cannot think in the last year of a better teacher for my soul than COVID-19. Maybe you see some of that too in your own life. I learned a lot about myself. Some things I praised God for, some things I repented of. I learned a lot about our world. I learned a lot about science, as you did. I learned a lot about you and me as the church. And most importantly, I think I learned a lot about God. And you know, it's a reminder again, that reality, that something as hard and challenging and um, suffering as a global pandemic can be, it's a reminder to us that every difficult thing that God ordains like COVID-19, is for those who are in Christ packed with grace. That even something like COVID-19 is to those in Christ a vehicle of grace to us. A vehicle of grace and kindness and goodness because inside of it, he is delivering all kinds of resources, all kinds of sanctifying work and power and opportunity. 
And therefore, we don't want to waste those moments. We don't want to waste our coronavirus. That's not at all to minimize great suffering that occurred around the world and is continuing to occur. But at the same time, let's not lose sight of the way that God uses trouble to change us. We, we so often talk about those key passages, don't we? But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes they kind of flee or, or fly away from us. That God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. We believe that. We know that. But sometimes we, over, we overlook that. It's a reminder to me of one of my favorite passages that has been a great help to me in my personal life. It's been a great help in the course of biblical counseling and ministry in our church, which is Psalm 119, verse 71, in which the psalmist says, it was good that I was afflicted, that I would learn your statutes. Now, when you hear that, it's important, as it is for me, not to hear statutes in some kind of cold, academic, um, kind of uh, seminary, kind of heady kind of way that I, I learned these statutes, but that I, I came to know you, God. I learned you. I learned what you are about. I learned who you are. I learned what you are. I learned how you love me. It was good that I was afflicted that I would learn your statutes. Well, as we come to this text this morning, I think it applies also because we are reading about affliction. We're reading about judgment, of course, a lot. We're reading about judgment that has been recorded in the pages of Scripture for, for all eternity, and they're given to us as a gift of his grace to help us and encourage us. And, and you've noticed that since we began the book of Amos, uh, each text that we work through is, is a little bit like the one before. But, but again, uh, it, it's like that parable of the village elders figuring out the new creature, the elephant, by looking at different parts of it, that we're doing the same thing. We're having an opportunity to look at the different parts of God's dealing in his world, of God's judgment, and as a result of that, and looking at these afflictions, that we're able to learn his statutes, we're able to draw close to him. And so this morning, what I'd like to do with these few verses that we have coming to the end of chapter one is to look into them to see not only what was going on at this time among another neighboring nation and people who are receiving God's judgment but also to be able to notice something that I think falls out quite clearly and helpfully to us, which is three parts to the path of judgment, as I've titled our sermon this morning. And so as we look at this text, we want to look for these three parts, and, and I hope that it will be a refresher for many of us, but also we know that we have, we have many new people to our church, and texts like this and give us an opportunity to rehearse some of those foundational truths of what we understand about God, what we understand about ourselves, how we've come to know him, how we walk with him. And so that's what I'd like for us to see this morning as we look at this text coming to the end of Amos chapter one, the three parts to the path of judgment. The first part that I want you to see as we look at just the first two thirds or so of verse 13 is that the path of judgment, as we've seen throughout the Bible, and in particular in Amos, has a part that is sinful action. When the judgment of God comes upon 
a person or people in the world, there's always sinful action that's being taken place. And it's sinful action, as we see here, against God and against other people. Let's look at just the first few bits of verse 13. This is what the Lord says. It continues that same kind of pattern that we've been seeing. For three offenses of the sons of Ammon, or you might, you might remember that language from your Bible, the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And then we hear why. We hear of the sinful action that brought about God's judgment upon them, the declaration of it, because they hear this, it's hard to read it. They ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. Now, I think that we most often think of sin as behavioral, as action that we take. It's something that we do. They're actions that we commit, and absolutely, that's true, isn't it? And we, we see that here. In the case of Ammon, their sin was gruesome. It was a gruesome act of literally ripping open pregnant women from the neighboring peoples that they wished to conquer. It was a common practice in kinds of border wars to do as much decimating violence and influence as you could against the enemy so that they would become demoralized. They, they would not be able to continue to, to grow as a people. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this being the, remember that numbered grading, three and then four, which is, which is a way of saying that their sin is overflowing. Can you imagine this being the overflowing sin of a nation? Tearing open pregnant women. Think about, think about the sons of Ammon, and they're perpetrating this against other people, but they're not perpetrating this simply against uh, enemy combatants, but against peaceful civilians, women, children, can you imagine? You can imagine. Because we live in a nation that perpetrates these kinds of things every day. We live in a world that perpetrates these kinds of gruesome sins before the face of God every day. 50 million Babies aborted since 1973. 50 million. Our largest, most populous state is California, and it only has 39 million people. It's more than the entire state of California. Or you think back some decades ago to the Holocaust, in which Germans, Nazis exterminated six million Jews. It is just horrible. Even though Ammon's sinful action was part of some kind of common border war practice intended to decimate the enemy, it does not change the fact that this is a stench in the nostrils of God who sees everything, watches everything. 
Ammon is here pictured with that three and then four grading system of overflowing sin, kind of like what we might think of as a sin factory. You drive down the interstate and you see big factories with smokestacks and they are just pumping out plumes of smoke. It's the same thing spiritually that's happening as they're perpetrating these gruesome sins against the people around them. They're pumping out everyday pollution, spiritual pollution into the nostrils of God, floating all the way up to heaven. And again, it is a miracle, even in this moment, that God is being so patient with the people of the world. It is a testimony to his grace, and it is an indictment upon human beings everywhere. Listen to what Isaiah 65, 5 through 7 says about how God thinks and feels about these things in his world. Verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their laps. Both your own wrongdoings and the wrongdoings of your fathers together, says the Lord. It's that picture again that that always has such a prominent place in my mind. The idea that, that our lives are floating up to God with some kind of scent, some kind of smell. One image that we frequently use in our church to understand our own personal lives, even on a daily basis, is the the picture of a fruit tree. A fruit tree either bearing good fruit or bad fruit, bearing good fruit or maybe what we would call thorns. Ammon is clearly depicted as a tree bearing bad fruit. Now, we know that we bear the same kinds of bad fruit, in our world, people around the world. And yet when we think about this text, we think about that picture of, of, of smoke rising to God's nostrils or think of our lives as good fruit trees or bad fruit trees, we are reminded of the truth that, that we as Christians are not bad fruit trees. Though the Bible says that we have become good fruit trees, we know that the reality the Bible also talks about is that we are right now in this moment until the very end, a kind of hybrid tree. By God's wisdom and by his plans and purposes, there's remaining sin in every heart here, every heart on the live stream. And therefore, we are capable, as we all know so well, of producing good fruit. Out of the good deposit of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we are capable of producing bad fruit as well. And so it's a call this morning as we see the sins of others, not to beat our chest and say, I'm so glad I'm not like the Ammonites, but to ask God, God, what's coming out of my life? What kind of smoke is coming out of the the stack of my heart that's coming up to you? And so if we were to, at just this moment, take a, a first use of the text, it would be this. Every text calls us to take inventory of what our lives are producing. 
that we would even think of ourselves like a factory and ask that question, what is coming out of me? That's why I think it's so helpful for us not to reserve these kinds of examinations just for New Year's Eve, the run-up to a new day and a new year when we're going to turn over a new leaf, but we would really stop at some periods of time and think back about our life. It could be for you every week, a, a habit that you get into to take inventory. It could be every month. It could be every, every six months. But it is important, isn't it? It's important for us to consider, even as we see here, our very real capacity to produce bad fruit. And now we can do that in a way that no one else in the world can as Christians. We can do that with real joy. Because we know that the God who has saved us and brought us into his covenant love is going to keep us. He's fully aware of all of our sin. He's aware of all of our bad fruit, past, present, future. And he has so set his love on us that he's going to keep us. He is working to change us. He's moving us from thorn tree living to fruit tree living. And therefore, unlike the people of the world, we don't need to hide from him. We don't need to shy away from him. We can move toward him with this, and we can do it with real joy because we know that he loves us, that no matter what we're doing, no matter what we've done, no matter what we will do, he will keep us. And he has a plan and a purpose for us to conform us to the image of his son, to make us like him, to purify us. And he's doing that day by day by day until finally one day in the future, a day of his choosing, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. No more sin, no more bad fruit, no more pollution out of our smokestacks. And we look forward to that day. But right now, there's still an opportunity for us with joy to take inventory of what our life is producing or, or ask that question of someone close to you. What thorns do you see coming out of me? Are there certain times when I'm bearing thorns and not good fruit? I'm bearing thorns that, that prick and cut and hurt? Or am I bearing good fruit that nourishes and makes peace, settles and calms, ministers to other people? This is a key question for every one of us, myself included. It's an important inventory for us to take. Because our behavior, our actions matter, obviously. Look at how serious God is about the actions of people in his world. And he won't let any of them, he won't let any of them slide, not in the end. But as we come to the next part of verse 13, actually the very last few words, we are reminded of something that we have plastered across the pages of scripture that we've talked about so many times in our church and we'll talk about it a thousand more is that sin is not ultimately behavioral. This is why any kind of effort to change our lives that is purely behavioral, law-oriented, cognitive, just change what you think, change the way you live. Uh, set up a new set of laws that will hem you in and restrict you so that you, you have to kind of walk down this little path that will never change us. Because our sin is not only, and listen to this, it's not ultimately behavioral. 
Because our behavior comes from somewhere. Where does our behavior come from? Well, the Bible is clear that our behavior comes from our hearts. That our hearts, the real person inside of you, of course, not the heart that's beating, the heart that is active and dynamic within you, your soul, your self, your spirit, who you really are on the inside, is the command center of all of that behavior. Behavior doesn't just come out of nowhere. It isn't forced upon us to act a certain way. It actually comes out of our hearts. It's, it's driven along by the many different motivations that we have. So here's the reality, even as we look at these last few words of verse 13, that no one, none of us are without motivation. None of us are ever neutral. Our hearts are dynamic and active and moving by God's design all the time. Therefore, if we want to see change in the way that we're living, we must seek change in the way that we're believing or in what's motivating our hearts. We have to look within our hearts. We need God's help to show us our hearts because none of us can truly know them. Only he can, and he is at work to do that. Notice these last few words in verse 13 as you hear it again. We see it over and over again. God's diagnosis, his anthropology about us. It says at the end of verse 13, why did they so cruelly treat the pregnant women of Gilead in order to, those are the words. Those are the words of motivation. Those are the words of reasoning. Those are the words of your heart and mine. Every single one of us has an in order to behind everything that we do. Every thorn that comes out of me, and they come out frequently, is preceded by an in order to. And every bit of good fruit, by God's grace, born out of my life and yours, is preceded by an in order to. And therefore, we have another challenge, and it is to take inventory not only of our behavior, not only of the fruit that's coming out, but to take inventory of the in order tos. For Ammon, the reason that they lived this way, the reason they acted this way, was in order to enlarge their borders. You can hear it right here. It's not so much that there's anything wrong with enlarging borders, but in fact, their vehemence, their violence, their ruling desire was to enlarge their borders such that they would do something that, that we might consider unthinkable because their hearts were gripped by this motivation in order to enlarge their borders. I think here we're seeing what is the basic trouble of our own desires unless they are brought into the transforming light of God's grace at work to sanctify and change us. Let me say that again. Here we are seeing again and again the basic trouble with our own desires. And that trouble persists unless those desires of our hearts, unless our in order tos, are brought into the transforming light of God's grace 
to change and sanctify us. We need our command center to be overhauled. Our command center is not good. It's, it's malfunctioning according to God's law, his ways, his purposes. And we need radical heart change. We need a heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. And the basic trouble is that because of sin... Because of remaining sin in us, the same remaining sin or or sin that was in the people of Ammon and the people of Israel and all of the people throughout history is that remaining sin or sin has created a battle between two kingdoms. It's not the kingdom of Gilead and Ammon or Gaza or Damascus or any others in the world. It is a kingdom battle between the kingdom of self in the kingdom of God. You see, among the people of Ammon, like many people in the world, the ultimate concern, the ultimate focus was the kingdom of self. It's the ultimate concern of where am I in the world? How am I doing? What do I want? How can I get it? That leaves no room. It leaves no room for the kingdom of Christ. We're told over and over again that we can't serve two masters, right? This is the same kind of dichotomy. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't ultimately serve God and the enlarging of borders. You can't serve God and your house. You can't serve God and your spouse or God and your children. You can only serve one, but isn't that the battle? That's the battle that we're feeling every single day. This is fundamentally what sin has done to us. Now, the more that we understand this, the more that we can do what we ought, which is to draw close to God so that he would take us and change us, that he would help us to see our inordinates and that he would change them, that he would transform them and that we would understand how sin has caused us to go so wrong. Now, I found recently a really helpful picture that I have been thinking about a lot ever since I heard it. And it's a picture that was presented by uh, John Piper. And it's a picture of what sin has done to the human heart. And he put it this way. It was so helpful to me. I thought that I would bring it to us this morning. He said that when God created Adam and Eve and all of us as their children, ultimately, he created them as mirrors at a 45-degree angle such that the glory and supremacy of God would shine down on them and then it would reflect to the watching world or to people around us, such that his glory would work for our good and the good of others. But then with the entrance of sin into the garden, that mirror was turned upside down, now becoming a 45-degree angle pointing down at, at the world itself, at mankind, no longer looking up to God. And therefore, people become enamored with themselves, and for good reason, because mankind is a marvel. If you don't believe that, I don't know where you've been in the last year and a half or so, of all of the accomplishments, of all the incredible ingenuity of mankind, going into outer space, Uh, working to conquer a pandemic through incredible ingenuity and work and and discipline and effort and thought and so many more things. And yet as soon as the mirror is turned upside down and we become enamored with ourselves, all we're doing is looking at our own reflection. We're stuck at our own fraudulent counterfeit glory 
And therefore, what do we need? We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to invade our hearts. We need God, by his grace, to turn us back around again. And yet we know that that experience of remaining sin means there's a constant pull on the mirror back to the other direction. That's the fight of the Christian life, is fighting against that constant pull by keeping our focus on Christ, that we would, that we would be satisfied with him, not looking down at ourselves, not seeking our satisfaction in the world, but in him alone. That is what it means to be a hybrid tree. That is the reason why you and I bear good fruit sometimes, bad fruit or thorns other times. It's all because of our motivation. We feel the ultimate pull between two kingdoms. And again, the path that we're on, the path that we want to be on, the path we're on as a church is the movement from thorn tree living to fruit tree living. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that this morning. I want you to remember that tomorrow and then on Tuesday and then the next day and the next day that the ultimate purpose of God in your life is to move you and me from thorn tree living to fruit tree living for his glory and the good of others around us. That really frames out the Christian life. It doesn't say everything about the Christian life. It doesn't explain all of the mysteries, but it gives us something to hold on to. It gives us a direction to walk, doesn't it? From thorn tree living to fruit tree living. Let me illustrate that by showing you this. In another passage from Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5, it says this. This is what the Lord says. You're going to hear about two trees. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Hear that? And makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt that is not inhabited. That's one tree out in the desert, turned away from God, trusting in himself, exalting himself, esteeming himself, listening to himself, focusing on himself, living for himself. I could go on. You get the point. But there is another tree. There's another way to live. And it's the way of grace. It's the way of courageous dependence on God. And it's in verse 7. Blessed, not cursed, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose very trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and does not fear when the heat comes, does not fear when the heat comes. Now, here's what our, our modern sensibilities assume about the problems in our lives. If you see someone who is doing really well, it must be because of some environmental influence or determinism. It's because of the, the world they're living in. It's the external help of the outside world that's, that's making them the way that they are. And therefore, if you see somebody who's really struggling, it's the external world that is determining how they live and making them who and what they are. But that's not what the Bible says. Because both of these trees, the tree that bears bad fruit or no fruit and the tree that bears good fruit, they are both in the heat. They're both in the desert. It's not because of the external forces around them. 
It's because of something else, and you hear it next in verse 8. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and does not fear when the heat comes. There's a supernatural stream of grace flowing in that desert, and it flows right up by grace to the tree that belongs to God, the one that trusts in him and has the Lord as his trust. There is this nourishing stream, and his roots are extended into the stream right there in the desert. It's a miracle stream. And that's what makes all the difference. Its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Even in a year of drought, this tree is bearing fruit. Why? Access to special grace. Friends, not everyone has been granted access to the stream of grace. But if you're in Christ, you have. You are in a desert. Look around you. You are in a desert, a land of salt, without real spiritual prosperity. But God has provided us with a river. And that's why we're so crazy about the word of God. That's why we're so crazy about the people of God. That's why we're so crazy about those great pictures that God's given us in his word of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper and all the texts of scripture because they are means of grace to us. That is our stream. That's where our help comes from. That's where we want to continue looking. You see a difference in the two ways to live, and it is a difference of dependence. It's a difference of where your roots are. And so there's another great question for us. Where are your roots? It's the question of in order tos. In what in order to have you sunk your roots? What is nourishing your soul? What is nourishing your heart that would produce different fruit that would move you from thorn tree living to fruit tree living? The answer that we desperately need every moment is that that would be the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that our roots would be extended into him because he himself is the stream of grace. Friends, we are in such desperate need every moment of every day of this stream of grace. We just, we just don't even know. We, we've only been given a glimpse into our incredible desperate need for daily, continual, sustaining, transforming grace. It is because of the effects of sin. It's because of that, that incredible doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean that you and I are as bad as we possibly could be because God's grace is restraining us. If you can even imagine it, uh, the people of Ammon were being restrained by the grace of God. They did not spin out of absolute control and chaos. He was continuing to control his world even then as he is now. It means instead that every part of you is tainted by sin. Not just the fruit, but also the roots of our hearts. If you don't prefer the language of total depravity, perhaps you would turn to radical corruption. In fact, the Latin word for radical is root. And it gets at that picture that we have been affected by sin even to the roots. And therefore, what do we need? We need ultimate grace down in the roots. We need to extend our roots into the stream. 
We are not like the loaf of bread that I opened not long ago that was out in our mudroom, and it had spots on some of the pieces of bread. And so I, like you, I hope like you, is it a weird thing to take the ones that are moldy and throw them away and eat the rest? I don't know. Court says it's fine. Done. We're not like that. When you take us out of the bag, we don't just have a flimsy arm. We don't just have a, a moldy foot. It's affected all of us. We are like the rotten piece of fruit that slipped to the back of the crisper. And then months later, you reach back there and you find it, and it's shriveled and disgusting, and it's oozing everywhere. That's us. That's why we need grace, isn't it? And that's why we need to take inventory of where our hearts are pointed, where our roots are extended, because it is so easy, because of that sin that remains, it's so easy for our roots to pull out of the stream of grace and push into something else, something else that we think will satisfy us, that will make us happy, that will care for us, that will solve our problems and take away our anxieties and keep us from being depressed. We've got our roots in the wrong place. We need our roots in a stream of grace. You've seen two parts, and they're not necessarily in that order because we know that motivations come first. This, this, this motive, the simple motives of the kingdom of self that we've just been considering, they result in those actions against God and others that God considers so seriously as a stench in his nostrils. But the last part that we see in this path toward judgment which, thank God, by grace we are not on, is the result of sinful distance between us and God. It is always that way. It is always that way, naturally, that sin divides. It divides people, and it certainly divides us from God. We see in these last couple of verses that the consequence of sin before God naturally by his law and righteousness is to be sent away. In the case of Ammon, which we'll read in verses 14 and 15, they were sent into exile. This is another picture of them being certainly conquered militarily, but it is a reminder of what spiritually happens before God for those who are transgressors of his law sent away. Listen to what it says. Again, you're hearing the same words again and again. I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah. Rabbah was the capital city of the Ammonites. In Greek, it's the word Philadelphia. You know what Philadelphia means? It's the city of brotherly love. How backward is that? Look at the way they were living. This was not a place of brotherly love. And therefore, God's judgment would consume her citadels, all of her all of her ramparts, all of our protections, amid war cries on the day of battle, amid a storm on the day of tempest, their king will go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. As I read that every time, my mind goes back to the book of Genesis. It goes back to the picture of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. You see what happened, that even in the midst of grace and all of his care for them, they were kicked out of the garden. They didn't leave the garden. They didn't show themselves to the door. God expelled them from his garden out into the world. 
Isaiah 59, 2 and 3. But your wrongdoings have caused a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with wrongdoing. Your lips have spoken deceit. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Sin results in a chasm between us and God. As we share the gospel with those who are here, those who are on our live stream, if you not yet belong to Christ, you're not a Christian, this is you. Your sin has separated you from God, hidden his face from you. You are in desperate need of his grace. You're in desperate need of someone who can reunite you to the God who made you. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. I'm reminded here, just as I am looking back upon the last year and a half, that when affliction or judgment or whatever it may be comes upon us, that it is not only an occasion for correction or discipline or punishment in the world, but it is an occasion for mercy, just as it was for Adam and Eve. When they were expelled out into the world, why do you think God did that? It wasn't simply to judge them. It was because he had a purpose to fill the world with worshipers. He clothed them with grace. He put them out into the world where then people would, would continue to multiply in the world and he would raise up from all the nations. Eventually after the Tower of Babel and spreading everyone out, he would raise people from all over the world to become his worshipers, to come into his covenant family, into his kingdom. It was not only an opportunity for law, but it was an opportunity for mercy. This reminds us as well, I hope it does to you, when you read words like this about sinners like you and me who face the judgment of God, that God has actually shown you and me marvelous, marvelous grace. You realize if you don't, I hope that you do. And when I don't, I hope that someone will remind me that I am no different than Ammon. I'm no different than them. There, there's no differences between human beings this way. I'm just the same. The only thing different about me, and if you're in Christ, the only thing different about you is that God, by a sheer act of mercy, has chosen to show his grace toward us, and he did not drive us away. What did he do? He drew us near. There is a theological trend among some churches to suppose that somehow we, enemies of God, Ammonite kin, drew ourselves near to God, that there was something about us that attracted him to us. Friends, that's not the case. That's not grace. But instead, it was quite the opposite. Instead, there was this incredible, marvelous exchange that while we were, were robed in our fallen human nature, just eaten up with sin, rotten to the core, that Jesus Christ in all of his righteousness and all of his perfection, he came to us and he exchanged with us. He gave us his righteousness. He took on himself on the cross, our sin, the punishment that we deserved, God's wrath, God's judgment so that we might be set free. This is at the center, center of the Christian life. I want to read you just a very brief, it's, it's a short paragraph from 
the Reformation, a, a time when these things were at their height of interest and concern. How do we relate to God? How do we come to God? What has God done for us? Listen to this. Talking about how God has shown us grace, one writes, as a consequence, we may dare assure ourselves that eternal life of which he is the heir is ours. And that the kingdom of heaven into which he has already entered can no more be cut off from us than from him. Again, that we cannot be condemned for our sins for whose guilt he has absolved us since he willed to take upon himself as if they were his own. Listen to this. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him, that by his descent to earth he's prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us, that accepting our weakness he has strengthened us by his power, that receiving our poverty unto himself he has transferred his wealth to us, that taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Believer, you should be rejoicing when you read a text like Amos, because that is not where you are. But that's where you could be. That's where I dare to say should be were it not for grace. God's grace has taken verses 14 and 15 in your life and mine and flipped it so that it doesn't say to us what he says to them and says to us, I will quench the fire of my wrath toward you. I will strengthen the walls of your life. I will defend you on the day of battle. I will shelter you in the day of tempest. I will draw near to you, says the Lord, and I will draw you near. There's nothing more important than for us to grab hold of that with joy so that we can do this important inventory of our lives as we consider the way that God has related to others in the world that we would seek last our life and satisfaction in the good news of this wonderful, wondrous exchange. I do want to challenge you this morning that this week you would make special effort, special attention. I could say this every Sunday and in one sense or another do, that you would make that your focus. You would focus in your heart on the great exchange that has occurred, that it would not escape your conscious thought that every morning you would awaken to know that God's mercies are new toward you because of Christ, because of what he has done for you. And then you can, with real joy and freedom, strive after becoming more like him, both in deed and in heart. And we need God's help for this. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. We have it here exalted uh, yet again before our eyes as we consider your judgment in the book of Amos, and yet we look at our own souls and we see that you have not set your wrath upon us. You've set your grace upon us, your love upon us. You've come to us. You've drawn us near to you. You have taken away our sin debt. 
by the life, death, and resurrection of your son, and you have promised by covenant love to keep us and to change us. God, help us to cooperate with you. Help us to take an inventory of our own lives. We ask you, God, that you would cause us to move from thorn tree living to fruit tree living. Cause us to be people who are ambassadors of yours, who are satisfied with you. Oh, God, we pray that we glorify you because of that. We thank you that we can gather here together this morning to sing to you, to praise you, to, to honor you because of your great love for us. And we pray that you would continue to minister your grace, even in these moments as we sing, that the words of truth on the screen would penetrate our hearts and would bear fruit in them, causing us to reflect your glory to the world and back to you, and that that would make us happy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.